Hello, everybody. Josh Brown here, back for another great episode on Franchise Euphoria. Well, today's episode is brought to you by IndieFranchiseLaw.com, a leading resource in the franchise space to help you if you're considering buying a franchise, turning your business into a franchise, or growing your business through a licensing or franchise structure. So go on, check it out, IndieFranchiseLaw.com. I think you'll find a lot of valuable and free information as you continue to kind of weigh franchising and licensing and the growth of your business. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Franchise Euphoria, I have Trey Williams, who is a full-time speaker and writer and has sat at the helm of two international franchise brands and is a sought-after consultant specializing in startup culture, entrepreneurship, and economic development. He has published or been quoted in more than 50 articles featured in Bloomberg, Forbes, Financial Market world, as well as dozens of other print and online publications. Trey speaks and writes about how to reverse the decline in American entrepreneurship, which I think through this interview, when you hear the statistics on that, you're going to be blown away. And he's on a mission to rescue 1 million entrepreneurs from traditional employment. You can learn more as we talk about in the interview at www.treywilliams.com, but that's T R A. Williams.com, T-R-A-Williams.com. And he's got a fascinating new book coming out called Boss Brain that we spend a good amount talking about. So this is a great interview for anybody who's involved in franchising uh, as we talk about the psychology of entrepreneurship, of franchising, of getting into the franchise game, of growing your business. And really enjoyed this interview with Trey Williams. Hello, Trey. Welcome to Franchise Euphoria. How you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for having me today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I mean, so it's interesting because, you know, oftentimes on podcasts, I'm talking to franchisees or franchisors or somebody who's turning their business into a franchise. And you are unique and different in that you work with, you know, you're a speaker, you're a writer, you have this background in franchising, and you have this ultimate goal of as you call it, rescuing 1 million entrepreneurs from traditional employment, and you have this love and passion for franchising. So I I love that. And the fact that uh, you sort of do it through your own avenue is really, really interesting to me. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, it's as rewarding for me as it is for for anyone else. And it's a passion of mine. I'm very happy to be here today to chat more about it. Yeah. So tell me, you sat at the helm. You you headed up two different international franchise brands. Let's let's start there. Tell us about that point in your life and some of the things that you learned from that process. Uh, well, as many folks, I uh, I stumbled into franchising in my early twenties, way back in the the UFOC days. Depending on how old you are, you may or may not remember the Uniford franchise offering circular. What we commonly call the FDD now, and I'm probably dating myself by bringing that up. But oh, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I stumbled into it way back in the day. And I, and I had, I, honestly, I just had no idea what I was doing. And I, I navigated and made a lot of terrible mistakes and learned from those lessons. And I managed to, to transfer those lessons into a career really in franchising that began by accident, largely. But I was fortunate enough to be able to become part of a couple of small growing, uh, what were then small and now continue to grow mid-sized franchise brands. And I uh, set at the, the vice president of operations helm with Shane Thompson at Shane's Rib Shack based out of Atlanta. Back then it was a Petrus brand. 
And uh, they were hovering around 120, 130 locations when I came on. And at the time, we were the fastest growing barbecue concept in the nation. And it, just, a, just a real hometown, wholesome, hardworking American kind of brand. And that, that appealed to me and my sensibilities. I, I grew up in South Georgia, if you can't tell by the accent, and have a, a real affinity for sort of the Norman Rockwell depictions of Americana. And Shane's brand is really one of those. So... Uh, after a few years there with Shane, I actually took a, took the brand into the Middle East and managed to overcome not having pork in the Middle East, if you can imagine that with a barbecue concept. Oh, wow. And took the, that was a bit of a struggle, but it did manage to penetrate our international expansion. And not long after that, I was moved over to be president of Planet Smoothie. And that is still a Petrus brand, same same office, same building. Product Smoothie had about 200 locations then and was growing rather quickly in the 2009-2010 range. A lot of folks out of work back then, just like now. A lot of folks uh, underemployed, looking for entrepreneurial opportunities, and a lot of them turning to brands with a low barrier of entry and and easy build out and, and easy financing. And Planet Smoothie really fit the bill for that. So we managed to expand Planet Smoothie quite a bit and caught the eye of uh, a few folks who realized how quickly we were growing, ended up selling that concept to Jim Anos and the folks over at Tasty Delight. And obviously anyone in franchising knows who Jim Anos is and storied Hall of Fame franchise sure. professional and uh, the guy who managed the mailboxes, et cetera, transition over into UPS store. And I learned a lot during that those times as well and took those lessons forward and since then, really, have been spending the majority of my time either helping folks who want to franchise their brand navigate that FTC process or consulting with brands who started off on their own and maybe are ready to implement some scalable infrastructure. But during that time, I, I noticed an anomaly, which really led to where I am now. And it was uh, this significant year-over-year decline in American entrepreneurship. I, I watched it for the better part of a decade and about three or four years ago decided that it was significant enough that people needed to hear about it, decided to write a book about it. Well, that's exciting. I mean, you know, and you actually follow through with it. I mean, you know, a lot of people have ideas and they stay at that point, ideas. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it was a labor still, of love. <laughs> well, I know, but it's so, it's so, it's so hard to like, I mean, to get into speaking and writing. I mean, so, so now that's what you do full time, right? I mean, you were full time as a speaker and a writer, correct? I am. I am full-time as a speaker and writer. I do a little consulting here and there. I'm an entrepreneur myself, and with all of the chaos that's going on in the world right now, I'm looking at some business opportunities to that I could potentially purchase. I'm a practice-what-you-preach kind of guy, so uh, I don't just coach from the cheap seats. I'm an entrepreneur as well, as, uh, as sort of helping those individuals who are trying to navigate the world of entrepreneurialism as well. Well, what are you seeing right now? I mean, with COVID-19 and with everything going on in the world, I mean, are you thinking coming out of this that there's going to be more of an influx in entrepreneurship or do you think there's going to be more of a retraction in entrepreneurship? I, I would like to think that it was going to be the former because I really do see this as a flashpoint in entrepreneurship in America and a watershed moment that we're going to look back on and reflect on as having lingering and significant effects over time. I do have concerns, however, that there is a, a really low level of confidence that most aspiring entrepreneurs and, and would-be business owners have in, in their ability to, to navigate an ever-increasingly complex business market. And that's not just from 
the complexity associated with is your business online or how are you managing the logistics internally, but, but really overcoming some of the government hurdles and the sort of, in my opinion, overreach that's stalling some of the growth that we could be having right now. I mean, you write about, talk about how, you know, there's a hundred million Americans that want to quit their jobs and start their own businesses. But really, in reality, you know, there's a very small percentage that actually do, you know, under 10% that actually do. Why do you think that is? So the research that I did for the book, it was really eye-opening. And as as an American, it was really painful. I realized, and I've shown this in the book, there's plenty of research to show that the American entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. In fact, America ranks third in the world as a percentage of the workforce who would prefer to be self-employed if they could be or had that opportunity. So we're behind Poland and Portugal. They are first and second. America is third. So we're 70% of the workforce says if they could, they would prefer to be self-employed. Right now, six and a half percent are. That is a staggering disparity. We're not talking about just an incremental difference between the desire and the reality of the situation. And the most painful part of it is entrepreneurship has decreased in America every year with very few exceptions since the baby boom of the early 40s. Uh, we, we've really had this downward trend over and over again, and it's growing faster and faster. For, for example, 25 years ago, entrepreneurs still made up about 12% of the U.S. workforce, and today it's a little more than half that. So you're, you're looking at every generation entrepreneurship being cut in half. And right now, on the current trend that we're on, 99% of Americans will work for the other 1% in 2040. It's a, it's a really staggering statistic. And when I tell people that, they, they kind of look at me strange and they don't believe me at first. But the statistics are right there in the National Bureau of Labor Statistics. You can pull these down from the Department of Labor. They're readily available. And um, it, it's really a, a staggering to realize that one of the most entrepreneurial spirited countries in the world actually has one of the lowest levels of real entrepreneurship. And All the research that I've done points to us being a victim of our own success. The stats show that as a country's quality of life increases and as wages increase, entrepreneurship decreases. And it's important to remember that the majority of businesses are started by middle-class Americans. Those who are on the upper income scale and those who are on the lower income scale represent a smaller portion of entrepreneurs who, who begin their businesses each year. And it's really the the bulk of the middle-class Americans that are in that Goldilocks zone. And it comes back to two things. It comes back to this ancient battle between optimism and uncertainty. And those on the upper end of the income scale are very optimistic and also very certain. They have a ton of money and they know that their future is going to be great. Those on the lower income scale do not have those, those resources available despite what their optimism might inspire them to do, they really don't, aren't able to take that action. So what you get are the folks in the middle class who are, I call this the Goldilocks zone. They are comfortable enough to invite a little risk, but their happiness and their comfort isn't so certain that it discourages change. And that's a, that's a, a smaller and smaller group of Americans these days. Well, I mean, what would you say, I mean, for people, you know, because people who are tuning into this show and people I talk to on a regular basis, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of them that are contemplating leaving their job right now. You know, maybe they've been in corporate America for 
a number of years, and, and now they feel like it's the right time for them to make a leap. Uh, but then also people who are who are looking to to continue to grow their own entrepreneurship scares who are already in the game, right? They're looking to expand and grow their businesses via the franchise. I mean, both are scary propositions, but you know, it, it's interesting to me that there's there, there's a mindset that comes into entrepreneurship. There's a mindset that comes into being an employee. And what I usually find is, you know, at least in my own experience, when I was just an employee somewhere, when I had that first opportunity to taste entrepreneurship, it was scary as hell. But then after I tasted it and lived with it and had some success with it, yes, but but went through that roller coaster of highs and lows that everyone in entrepreneurship experiences, it's very hard to go back to an employee. <laughs> really I mean, don't you agree? Like, I, I just don't, you don't see very many people who become an entrepreneur and then next thing you know, they're like, nah, I'm, I'm good with this. I'm going to go back to being an employee. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, it, it's empowering in a way that, that makes it almost impossible to sacrifice that kind of control and to give that kind of control to someone else again over your life. So right now is such an important moment. There are I, personally, I think this is a wonderful time to to begin the process of developing a business. And if you already have a business, I actually think this is a fantastic time to franchise your business. There are 30 or 40 million people out of work. The ones who are the most financially qualified are the ones who are going to, to find jobs uh, more difficult to obtain. Frontline employees will be hired first. So there's a lingering level of unemployment around people who are qualified uh, from an experience standpoint and a financial standpoint. And you make a great concept available to those people now. It, it really could be its own flashpoint for, for beginning a franchise. Well, so how, how do we go? I mean, your book called Boss Brain, I want you to be able to talk about that for a little bit. But I mean, essentially, it talks about how we go through that process of helping people realize essentially their entrepreneurial dreams, their endeavors, um, how they can go about it. How do you do that? I mean, there, there are so many, you know, there's the mental, there's the physical, there's the monetary, there's all, all sorts of components you have to overcome. You know, it's rare, I would say, I mean, it certainly happens, but as a percentage, I think it's probably rare that somebody who truly becomes an entrepreneur does so and feels totally secure in that decision. <laughs> Like to like to do that. I mean, it's like, oh, I've got money in the bank. If this happens, I'm good. No, people are taking risks. I mean, people understand that you know, hey, I go and do this, and there is a risk that it won't work. But how do you overcome those barriers? I think it's easier for some. Maybe some have less to lose. I don't know. But I don't. I don't know what all goes into. And I'd be curious your thoughts, having researched this and now written about it in Boss Brain. What are the things that help people overcome those physical and mental barriers? So the book itself is about the transition between traditional employment and self-employment. There are a thousand books out there about how to start a business. A thousand books tell you how to choose your LLC or your incorporation and how to get your employee tax ID number. All of, all of these tactics that really is just building a process. It doesn't have a tangible result. But this book, Boss Brain, is about making that mental and physical transition where you stop thinking and living like an employee and start thinking and living like an entrepreneur. So you really nailed it there. And the challenge is 
Most people don't understand the difference between risk and uncertainty. They look at entrepreneurship as uncertain. Well, see, I like that. That's a good point. The risk and uncertainty. But it, it's true. And you use both words there. So it's it's awesome that you're latching on to this early on. It makes me feel good about folks' ability to, to really comprehend this in the book. So when they look at entrepreneurship, people compare the idea of it to their current state of existence. And let's look at their current state of existence. It's a mortgage. It's a car that's almost paid off. It's 26 paychecks a year. It's it's 14 days of vacation. And all of these things are pretty much certain, except when times like what we just had of the past few months happen and you realize that your entire existence is beholden to someone or something else. So that the certainty of it is ordinarily there. Now, what you really need to do when you look at entrepreneurship is not look at it as being uncertain, is look at it as saying there is a risk involved quantify what that risk is and only expose yourself to the level that your personal risk aversion allows you to tolerate. Uh, Folks always say, what if I lose everything? And I don't say, well, you will only lose everything if you risk everything. And who's going to risk everything? I'm not telling you to to, mortgage one of your kids and use them as collateral for your loans and you break up your family here. We're, we're, we're saying that you can hey, I'll, 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 Some days that might sound like a good option. <laughs> it it might, you know. Although, I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I probably wouldn't have been good collateral for much. But uh, but what, what you have to really think about is that there are ways to begin that aren't the hyperbolic version of what if I lose everything. And, and the book really talks about embracing your own level of tolerance here and recognizing the ways that you currently waste your resources and your time that could be diverted and directed toward beginning in a meaningful way, even if it's small, that builds over time. The people I know with the most successful businesses, they didn't just quit their job and start a business, right? They started working in their garage. They put it online. They got a little sales on Facebook. That built over time. And and after a year or two, they say, you know what? I'm making more now than I'm making at my job, and I'm ready to commit myself full time. Is that your recommendation? I mean, is that because that that to me is a very popular and strategic way to do it. Now, you can change that equation a little bit, right? You can say replace what you've already earned, maybe replace fifty percent of what. I mean, it depends on on your risk tolerance. I mean, that's where you're getting it, right? You know, if you feel like if you get the initial momentum and get the thing going, you don't have to wait to replace all of your income. Maybe you have reserves that you would fall back on, maybe not. But that gets into a self-conversation and a decision of your own comfort level. But I agree with you. I mean, nobody should just feel like entrepreneurship is just taking a bunch of things, just being haphazardly with it, not thinking through it. I mean, it's like that whole joke of like, you know, you're the 10-year overnight success. People, people, <laughs> right. people very easily forget that if you look across the board at successful companies and companies that have grown and been sold and been built and so forth. People are like, oh my God, that just popped up overnight. And then you dive into the backstory of you're like, no, they were around for 13 years. Right. I mean, you know, it's like, that's, yeah, they were, they were fine tuning what they were doing. They were fine tuning their craft, but it all starts with a level of, you know, it's, if you have kids, what comfort level do you have? I mean, you know, you, if you're, if you're a single person, your risk tolerance might be greater than if you have a wife or a husband and children right. and a house and all these other commitments and all that other stuff. You should certainly not add that pressure of doing something just haphazardly. But I think coming up, like what you're saying with the right, what is it with your particular scenario? And I think that that resonates really well with people because there is not just a one-shot way of doing this. 
It, there's not. And, and I say in the book, I have some painful truths in there. And I, I don't want to vilify anyone's lifestyle or tell them something is their fault uh, when, when they're looking at the scenario they're in. But for the most part, the decisions that we've made brought us to where we are. And, and the decisions that we make today are going to create and reshape our future. So that, that's, that's, for the most part, true all the time. So the reason I bring this up is because the average American watches TV three and a half hours a day. The average American stares at their phone also for three and a half to four hours a day. The average American does housework for about 110 minutes a day. So what that tells me is that you are either staring at your phone, watching TV, or cleaning a house that you are tied to for the next 30 years for eight hours a day. And when I hear people say that they don't have time and, and you know they don't know when they would get around to doing that. I have an entire section, three chapters in the book about how we deploy and waste our resources all the way down to how we're using debt. For instance, the average American has almost $7,000 in credit card debt right now. And you may point to that and say, well, wages aren't high enough. And and most people are using that to get by on when money is tight, but that's not what Equifax and TransUnion and Experian revealed. What they revealed is that the people who carry month to month credit card debt, outspend those who do not in seven of nine categories on discretionary income. So what we as Americans are doing and have been doing for 40 or 50 years now is wasting our time, wasting our resources, wasting our energy, and we're boxing ourselves into what society tells us we need. Well, you need a house, you need a car, you need this, you need that. And and you go and try to construct this life, this blueprint of the American life, and it's become a blueprint for mediocrity. It chains you to these things that you own, and it prevents you from being able to do the things that you really want to do. It's it's insane because we we cede control of our lives to all of these things, and then point to them as the reason why we no longer have control of our lives. Well, and those are all. How, how do you? I mean, how do you? Maybe this is a subject of another conversation, but I think that's all true. But how do you change those habits? I mean, do you, is it just a matter of intention? Is it just a matter of dedication? In the book, we talk about deconstruction. No one wants to destroy the life that you live. And even if you're unhappy in your job and you're miserable and you desperately want to become self-employed, no one wants to destroy their life in the process. So what I talk about is the difference between destroying something and deconstructing is when you destroy it, you really lose the usefulness of the components that built it to begin with. But when you deconstruct it, when you take it apart, you're able to take those pieces and use them to build something else, something that makes you happier and has more meaning. And for the most part, folks have the resources they, they need to be able to begin their own business. They just have to deconstruct them from how they're currently being used to rebuild something else or, or somewhere else. Well, and as sort of a finishing note here, because I've really enjoyed this, this interview, I mean, what would you say to somebody who's in this position right now? You know, they've been affected by COVID. They've been let go. They're in a position where they've wanted to do something for a very long time. Now they're finally ready to do it. Obviously, everything is specific to a person's scenario, but as a general you know, proposition, what would you say is a good next step for somebody to take that thought process, take that idea, take their dreams of what they want to do, and take a good first actionable next step to put that in process? So I'm glad you asked this because in the book, we really talk about four primary entrepreneurial instincts and following how those instincts flow is the way to escape traditional employment. The first instinct is belief. Then here's the problem with belief and how it's going to answer your question. You can't just wake up one day and decide to believe something. 
you can't just wake up one day and believe that you're going to become an entrepreneur and have a successful business. For people who are non-believers currently, beliefs are reverse engineered. So what it requires is that you just take some steps, some small steps. And even if those small steps are meaningless in and of themselves, what happens is over time, you become the kind of person and you view yourself in a way as the kind of person who takes those steps. And the, and the one who takes action and creates momentum is the person that starts to believe. So you reverse engineer your own beliefs. And once you have belief in place, the remaining uh, three entrepreneurial instincts in the book really flow on their own. But belief in itself is the first step and belief is reverse engineered. You just It's like tipping over one domino. And that's really all you have to do is knock that first domino over and all of the others fall. But it, it took you knocking the first one over and, uh, and over time, the beliefs are rebuilt and your perception of yourself as an entrepreneur, not an employee are rebuilt. Well, thank you so much, Trey, for coming on today. I think this has been really insightful, uh, really, really good topic uh, to discuss timely as well. Where can uh, people learn more about you? Where can they get the book, Boss Brain? Uh, where should they go? Well, they can go to TreyWilliams.com, T-R-A-Williams.com. The tab for pre-sales will be up in about two weeks. The book is with the, the publisher right now and will be shipped this fall. So pre-orders are about to begin, and I'm going to be on a, a speaking tour through the summer and building up to the, the book's release in the fall as well. So you'll be able to see dates to hear me talk about this in a variety of workshops and things that I'm doing for organizations that are trying to, to build the entrepreneurial spirit within their own company. So I'd love to engage with people there, and uh, anyone can contact me through that website. And I would look forward to hearing one, anyone who would like to have this type of discussion because it's one that I'm passionate about and enjoy really working with current and would-be entrepreneurs no matter where they are in their career. Well, I'm certainly going to be somebody who purchases that book because I do believe in you know the psychology of entrepreneurship. And even though you know, I've been at it for a little while and many others have been, I think it's really important. And I find this over and over again for people who are even already entrepreneurs and are already in the game to to read and revisit and think about the psychology behind it all because it is it is certainly a journey it's certainly a process as you go through it and there's always learning uh, to be had so thank you for putting all this together thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to staying in touch I appreciate your time today it's been a pleasure Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Franchise Euphoria. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed the podcast in general, I would really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. It really helps to get this podcast out to more and more people. So the easy way to do it is go to iTunes and in the search box, put in Franchise Euphoria. You will then see my cover art and you click on my smiling face that says Franchise Euphoria and then click on the link that says ratings and reviews. It's that simple, but boy, oh boy, does it mean the world to me when people leave ratings and reviews. And like I said, it really helps get the show out there. Once again, would love it if you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the show. And until the next time, happy franchising.